Good morning, friends. It's good to be with you as much as is possible right now. My name is Nathan Greaser. I am uh, joining you this morning uh, partly out of my role as director of the Shalom Project here in Lancaster, um, and obviously coming to you from my house here. And um, as is sort of par for the course right now, I welcome your patience and flexibility. You might uh, hear from or see one of my daughters or my wife, Kate, who's, uh, who's working upstairs right now. Before we dive into this message, uh, I thought I would give you just a quick introduction to the Shalom Project, and I realize that's kind of hard to see. Uh, but um, the Shalom Project is an intentional community of young adults who affect social change through lives of service. So during our one-year experience, we invite college graduates uh, to come and live together in a house here in Lancaster City to serve full-time in professional internships and to participate in weekly seminars aimed at personal growth and Christian formation. We cover all of the living expenses for our participants during their year with us. We offer a small stipend, we help defer loans, and there's no fee to join the program. And our hope is really that during their time with us, our participants experience God's shalom, God's wholeness and peace, and extend that shalom into the Lancaster community. We are in the middle of uh, recruiting right now. Our application window is open through the end of June. So if you or someone you know uh, might be interested in joining us, uh, I'd love to talk more. You can find lots more information on our website, shalomlancaster.org, um, as well as my contact info there. So my hope is that this morning uh, we can dive together into this Luke 24 text um, and think, think about that a little bit, uh, while also giving you a little bit more of a, of a window into the Shalom Project. Um, so first, a story uh, from the Shalom Project about a participant who joined our program two years ago. This participant made it clear as she entered the Shalom Project that she did not identify with the Christian faith. And that, that's not a problem for us. We want to be uh, a space where young people can explore spiritual formation, no matter their starting point. And that year, there were also uh, already several other participants who had deep roots of faith and who were serious about that and wanted to pursue that further. So I was confident that as a group, they could support this one particular participant in her journey, despite coming from a position of not identifying with faith. Uh, but this participant really ended up turning that assumption on its head for me. She was so committed to intentional community that she often attended church with her housemates or went to her home church where she had grown up to share about the Shalom Project and her internship with Meals on Wheels. We have partnerships with several seminaries, and this participant chose, uh, just out of her own curiosity, to take a class on Anabaptist history and theology, of all things. Of anyone in the group, this particular participant was most prone to ask thought-provoking questions in seminars to stretch others and invite them to think about things in different ways and new ways. And she also fought for those on the margins during her time with us, both through her internship at Meals on Wheels and in other ways. So in short, this participant surprised me during that particular program year. I expected the driver for communal spiritual formation to come from the participants who were serious about their faith. And they contributed to that for sure. Um, but this particular participant's role uh, in the group's spiritual formation is what stands out to me. I did not expect the person who didn't identify with Christianity to have such a significant role in moving the group toward Christ. I tell this story because this Luke 24 passage has a lot to do with expectations. This week, as I read this text, I kept wondering, why didn't anyone recognize Jesus upon his resurrection? Mary, Cleopas, the disciples were told here in this passage that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And there are lots of theories about why this is the case, uh, but maybe 
uh, it was simply because this resurrection thing was simply not what they were expecting. That's one of the theories out there. It was outside of the realm of their expectation. So for the rest of this message, I want to talk about three things related to expectations. What the disciples expected of Jesus, what we expect of Jesus, and ways that we might move beyond the rut that our expectations create for us so that we can experience God and see Jesus in new ways. So that's kind of where we're going. So what did the disciples expect? In this passage, Cleopas is astonished that Jesus has not heard about the things that happened. And at Jesus' prompting, he explains, we had hoped that he, that Jesus, was the one to redeem Israel. Cleopas didn't recognize Jesus or his redemptive work yet. He also shares that some of the disciples needed to see the tomb for themselves, even after the women told them that it was empty. Clearly, these events were not what they expected. So what did they expect from the Messiah? Based on the Old Testament narrative, I think that that the disciples were expecting the Messiah to be a Jewish king from the line of David, who would be like the Old Testament kings, only better, the fulfillment of that kingship model, and whose rule would be specific to the Jewish people. Saul was made king of Israel over a thousand years before Jesus. And those thousand years of the Jewish people organizing under a king created, I imagine, this deep-seated cultural expectation for who the Messiah would be. The Messiah would function and would redeem within the kingship model. That's what they could get their heads around. So it was likely their expectations that blinded Cleopas and the other disciples to Jesus's presence in this text. Which leads me to wonder, in what ways might our expectations also be shaping our view of and our experience of Christ? And so that's where I want to go next. And as I was thinking about this question, what do we expect this week? um, I went to psychology, I turned to psychology. Confirmation bias tells us that that we expect things that confirm what we already believe. Confirmation bias is the tendency to only pay attention to information that confirms your personal beliefs or assumptions. And this tendency is especially strong for desired outcomes, emotionally charged issues, and deeply held beliefs. If you're going to represent confirmation bias visually, it might look something like this. On the one hand, you have Uh, objective facts, and on the other side you have your beliefs, and the place where those overlap is sort of your scope of of what you can see and what you expect to see. And so there's a lot uh, that we miss because of our tendency toward confirmation bias. Now, not only do we uh, see and experience, do we filter what we see and experience based on what we already believe, but we also have the tendency to attribute our beliefs and assumptions to God. A 2009 study showed that we are, and this is a quote, especially egocentric when making inferences about God's beliefs. We're especially egocentric when making inferences about God's beliefs. We assume that God believes what we do, actually even more than we assume that another person believes what we do. And when our beliefs change, so do God's. That's what we assume. So what do we expect We expect God to believe what we believe and to act within the confines of what we already believe. And I think this is what the disciples were experiencing as well. But as we see in the the whole story of Jesus, and in this particular story of the road to Emmaus, God is full of surprises. 
So what can we do about our preconceived notions? How can we begin to notice the unexpected and surprising ways that Christ shows up to us? How do we move beyond the confines of our expectations? The first thing I think we can do is to notice and name Christ's presence in hindsight. It's often easier to see what God was up to after the fact, as long as we actually take the time to look back and reflect. Cleopas and the other disciple actually did this after they discovered who Jesus was. When they realized that this mystery man on the road to Emmaus was Jesus, they looked back and they said, oh, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? Practicing hindsight allows us to look back like Cleopas and say, oh, that was God. And that in turn increases our sense of expectancy for God to show up to us in the present and in the future. The second thing I think we can do is to look for Jesus in the moment. Jesus sat with Cleopas and the other disciple around a meal at the table, and as he broke bread, their eyes were opened, verse 31 says. They recognized him in that moment. There are lots of great resources out there for us now on mindfulness and contemplation, and I think those can be super helpful uh, with developing our ability to be present in the moment. The practice of being present to Christ in the present is both a gift from God, like we see in this text, and a muscle that we can develop, something we can practice. Third, we can help each other grow our awareness of God in the future by sharing our stories with each other. After recognizing Jesus, Cleopas and the other disciple went to find the eleven, and this text says they told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road, and how they had recognized him as he was breaking the bread. When you tell me about how you've experienced Christ, and when I share my stories with you, our collective awareness of God grows and our expectations for God are broadened. By telling stories, we're more prone to see God in more ways. One more Shalom Project story. We had a recent participant who came to faith in college a couple years before joining the Shalom Project. She's bright and inquisitive, and she began devouring whatever she could read uh, about peace and justice and community and reconciliation according to the way of Jesus. Her commitment to this way of Jesus, to this way of life, deepened quickly, and she kept pushing for more. So each Shalom Project participant designs a rule of life when they join the program. This is simply a set of practices that they commit to in an effort to grow in love of God and neighbor and self. And the, the framework for this or the boundaries for this are pretty wide open. Participants can, can develop this rule of life in whatever way they think will be most helpful to them. And this particular participant uh, developed one of the more robust rule of life, rules of life that I've seen. Uh, she, she was serious about growing in these areas of love of God and neighbor and self, and she held herself to it. She even used an app on her phone to set, set her goals and give her reminders and track her progress. So this participant and I were sitting in a coffee shop uh, together for our monthly one-on-one, -on -one, maybe about midway through the year. And she described to me the things she had been doing that month and what she was finding meaningful. And then she talked about her desire to continue pushing and growing and expanding her understanding of and relationship to God. But she just wasn't sure what that next thing was. And so we sat quietly for a moment, drinking our coffee. And then at nearly the same time, we both had this sense that it was time for her to rest, 
to stop doing and simply be for a season. It's hard to overstate how much this aha moment surprised both of us, not only because we both had the thought at the same time, but because it seemed counterintuitive at first. To pause and rest when so much of this person's faith journey had been about movement and growth, and that was life-giving for her, and it connected her to God. But God desired to show up to this person in ways that were outside of what she had experienced in the past. And I'm grateful that the Shalom Project helped create space for this participant to look back on her faith journey, to notice God in the moment in that coffee shop, and to allow that to prepare her for the ways that God would show up to her in stillness in the future. So as we continue in this post-Easter journey, may we each have eyes to see and ears to hear Jesus in the surprising ways that he comes to us. May your expectations be blown out of the water as your image of God expands. And in this time of uncertainty and anxiety, may your encounters with Jesus lead you to greater hope and joy and gratitude. Peace to you all.